Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Hello and uh, welcome to Codish. I'm joined today by Matt Noble of Sentry uh, and an ex-Hirokai as well. Uh, hello, Matt. Hey. I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, your experience at Sentry and uh, prior to that at Heroku. Uh, uh, tell us what, you, what you've what you been working on. Uh, at Heroku, I was uh, the partner engineer is what we called it. Uh, I was essentially a uh, member of the ecosystem team who was uh, responsible for sort of ensuring that what we were doing from an engineering perspective was uh, what we needed to be doing for our add-on partners and our ecosystem partners. Um, the team was kind of, um, the way I viewed it, the team was split into having two main audiences, one being the end user, the users of Heroku, and the other being the developers and companies who were building add-ons and integrations and stuff to enable those end users. I sort of focused more on the the people building the integrations um, and making sure we were building the tools that were making them successful to then ultimately make our shared customers successful. What were those tools that, that helped make them successful? Some of it is sort of, sort of like operational in nature. Some of it is just sort of the system in general. And so the whole add-ons system was essentially a set of APIs and uh, like webhook systems to enabled to web services, to developers tools to interact with one another. So part of it was like making sure that experience of interacting with the APIs and the tools and the things we built for partners were sort of easy and the best possible thing for them. The other was uh, making sure they had enough data and information and insight into the actual operational aspects of things. So like when installations go wrong or provisioning goes wrong or webhooks aren't delivered, making sure they have the tools to figure that out and debug quickly and sort of course correct. And so how is that translated into the work that you're doing at Sentry now? You're still on the ecosystem team there, just like you were at, at Heroku. Yeah, uh, so I, I lead the ecosystem engineering team here. The overarching goal here is, is the idea that developer tools work better when they work together and developers use many tools. So the goal is to sort of create systems and platforms that let the folks who are developing those different developer tools integrate with one another so that um, developers have an easier time uh, doing the things they need to do and that their like workflows sort of just fit into one another regardless of what tool they're using at any given moment. It's like it's stitching together these 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 different tools that developers like to use. And what does that look like uh, from Sentry's point of view? And we haven't even actually touched on what Sentry does overall. So Sentry overall tracks sort of information, mainly I'd say about uh, errors and events that happen in your software so that um, you can figure out what's going wrong and get to a resolution as quickly as possible. That's one piece of sort of the overall, like what a developer does so what it looks like for us is taking that information or those sort of concepts and figuring out how it fits into other workflows. A um, good example of that for us specifically is like uh, most engineering teams use some 
project management tool, right? Um, mm-hmm. Fixing issues and fixing bugs and making improvements is all part of uh, how you plan for an engineering team. And so making it really easy to, to go from Sentry when you notice an error or an exception or something, fitting it into your backlog through an integration from Sentry to whatever project management tool you're using um, is really valuable because then it's previously, it's sort of this process where you have to go from one tool, you have to interpret it, you have to figure out what data makes sense to go into the other tool. Um, Somebody actually has to manage that. Um, And it's this like manual process that takes more effort than it should. And so instead of doing that, the two systems can be integrated in a way where we generally know what information you want from an error in a story in your project management tool. And so if we make it really easy for you to just click a button or select a few things and sync that data between the two systems, it cuts out a bunch of effort that's really unnecessary a lot of the time, but still enables you and your workflow in a way that's that's useful. Nice. So, uh, you know, if I have some kind of error report that shows up in Sentry that surfaced from my front end or my back end, then where am I going to be copying that data over? It's like, you know, creating issues in GitHub for those things, that sort of thing? Or Yeah, yeah. Or say you like going along with the project management sort of idea or whatever. Um, say you're using something like Clubhouse or whatever. You're going to go from Sentry. You're going to pull information about the exception, the, the like error class that popped up, the message. Sentry exposes a whole bunch of information about it. We expose like breadcrumbs, which are essentially the steps the user took or the things that happened that led up to this. Um, there's a whole bunch of like context and information about the error that you would have to go from Sentry, copy and paste it into a story in Clubhouse in whatever way you think makes sense. The other side of it too is sort of the like synchronization of data between the two systems. And so imagine you go into your code base, you fix a problem, you deploy it, you resolve something in Sentry, you resolve the error because it's no longer an issue. You also have to go into these other systems like Clubhouse in this example and move that story along into in progress and then done and deployed or whatever. So cutting out all that like manual work is sort of one of the benefits of a system like this. So touch a little bit about sort of the best practices that you sort of picked up in your time at Heroku on the ecosystem team here uh, that's going into uh, this new work that you're doing to automate uh, the kinds of uh, workflows that developers are, are looking to accomplish centered around their sort of their issue tracking and their, their, their error reporting and all of that jazz. I think there's sort of like two categories of of things I learned from Heroku. I think one is sort of how you approach this kind of problem or like maybe philosophically is a better way of describing it. And the other is sort of a technical set of things that um, I learned. The first sort of philosophical or like how you look at a system like this or a team like this or whatever. um, One of the things that became really, really clear pretty early on is that a team like this has sort of two customers. Um, they have the end user of your product, and then they have the set of developers or companies who are building the integrations for this end user. 
And so they're two different groups of people. They're incentivized two different ways and they want two different things often. Sometimes they overlap and that's really great. But one of the things I learned that I think is really important when you're doing sort of ecosystem integration work is, is you need to actually view these as two different groups and you need to really understand them um, individually. That was kind of the nice thing about how um, Heroku's ecosystem team was structured was there's someone like me who was maybe more heavily um, geared towards the person building these tools. I was sort of more on that end of the spectrum. I was more involved in the like partner relationship side of things from an engineering perspective. Mm-hmm. And then we had other folks who were um, maybe a little more focused on the end user side of it. Cause all these features that we were building for partners and all the features partners were building are ultimately for people in this case, using like Heroku in this example. And so having people who focus on those two sides of it, but are also on the same team or, or work really well together is really, really important. Um, so that was one thing. The other sort of like philosophical thing that I learned and like got a greater appreciation for at Heroku was um, this idea that an API is a user interface in a lot of ways, um, or an interface at least, just like a UI, like a visual UI is. One of the things I really, really loved about Heroku was how intentional they were and are about designing APIs and the use of that API. Um, And it's not just necessarily a way to enable uh, like a front-end application. I think Heroku always did a good job of thinking about it as an interface to the primitives of their system. I think that's really important. It's really useful for a whole lot of reasons, but it also makes it easy to sort of reason with a system like this when it's done in like a very intentional way. So I'm, I'm trying to pull that as much as possible into everything I do. So what does, what do like great APIs, great API at the end of the day, the I in API, right, is, is uh, for interface. Uh, and uh, like you pointed out, it's an interface like any other, whether or not it's a CLI or uh, something visual. What, uh, what sort of are the, the hallmarks? I mean, like a lot of people talk about what makes for great, user interfaces and great user experiences using those interfaces. What do good experiences look like? What do great APIs look like? What are the qualities that, that really matter to, to have there uh, in order to, to sort of reach that level of, of polish and cohesiveness? Like, you know, what in your experience has been sort of the, the things that are hallmarks of goodness there? I think broadly speaking, if the API gives you a general sense of the system as a whole and all the entities within that system and how they're related to one another and what those relationships mean, that's sort of a hallmark of a, of a good API to me. A lot of it, I think, is just reasoning with it. And so if you expose resources in a way where you can understand what each of them mean in isolation, but then also understand how they interact with one another, that's really important. So like tangibly, I think what that means is, so to go like the opposite way, when you're Designing an API to accommodate a single consumer, you do things like including data about related resources within the main payload of a different resource. Because in the front end, it's easier to just ask for all the data in one giant blob. And so you end up mashing 
data together and it sort of blurs the lines of what any one individual resource is and what it means within the system. And so in my opinion, keeping sort of data concise around individual resources and then um, expressing the relationships between those individual resources where maybe the representation of any individual resources small and uh, you need to pull a couple different resources to get the big picture. I think that's good and that's okay because it's sort of the like common view of the primitives of the system where if one consumer needs things in a certain way, they can pull the data, data they need and manipulate it in one way. If a different consumer needs it differently, they can do the same thing. But each of those consumers has a common understanding of, of sort of the makeup of the system from like a primitive point of view. Now, who in, in, in this case, you know, you're talking about um, an API that's going to power an ecosystem. And like you said, it's sort of a, a, like, a, like a market with two faces, right? We have the end users, which we're all surfing together in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the partners, the people that are, that are building the add-ons for this ecosystem or the, the, the plugins or the, whatever is being, whatever the ecosystem is an ecosystem of. Mm-hmm. Uh, the end users are probably not consumers of this API. So uh, who's consuming this API? Is it the, uh, the partners and they're using this API in order to do sort of the, the logistical work of like provisioning and deprovisioning these, these things and interacting with, with billing control surfaces and things like that? Or are there other audiences for these APIs that you're building? Yeah, there, there are actually. The, I think when we started going down this path, we thought of this from a perspective of like, there are companies and people out there who are building developer tools who want to use Sentry data or want to push data into Sentry or use something in an interesting way for end users. And so in that case, it's sort of this like, it's not necessarily the end user, but it's this intermediary party that wants to do something to enable those end users. And so we sort of started with that idea. Um, and a lot of ecosystems and stuff like this is based around that idea. Like most marketplaces or add-on systems or whatever are based on that idea that there's three parties. There's you, the company building the platform. There's partner building a thing to enable people and then there's the people being enabled who are end end users that's a big part of it for us and in sort of that regard we um to what you said about like the billing aspect of it we're very very focused on the experience side of things and so there's no currently there's no like billing aspect necessarily to our integration platform which is one difference between, I guess, Heroku's ecosystem and our current ecosystem is that there definitely is a billing component, obviously, through Heroku's system. Um, you can purchase like the use of other developer tools through Heroku, which means that the provisioning and installation process is slightly different in that case than it is for us. Because in that case, a lot of the time, it's a like database provider or... Uh, some other tool or whatever, actually spinning up infrastructure. In our case, a lot of the time we assume that you already have an account in the other tool that you want to use. And so the general idea is like, we assume you already have a bunch of tools that you're using. We want to connect all those tools for you. Oh, so it's more like sign in with whatever. Yeah, it's it's not quite just like sign in with whatever, but it's when you 
when you install the installation, like implementation wise or whatever, you get redirected to that service. You sign in over there. They do whatever they need to do to take the data that Sentry sends them about this installation to associate it with the person's account on their end. And then they can send data back to Sentry to do the same sort of thing. Um, but it's less about like they are spinning up an account or they are spinning up infrastructure or whatever. It's just we have these two accounts and these two things that we want to connect together. And so we are pretty much solely focused on just the experience of using those tools together. And so that's sort of the like third party aspect of this platform is what I call a third party meeting. Like there's a developer building something for the end user. What we found along the way of doing this when we were like talking to people and getting feedback, we learned that there's a lot of uh, teams and organizations that actually want to use a lot of the same functionality, but for internal tools, uh, which was like an interesting thing to learn. And so now we're sort of back to the situation where we have two sets of customers. I guess in reality, it's kind of like three though. We have developers wanting to build integrations for our end users. We have the end users who want to consume these things. And now we have this third party that is developers and users of Sentry that also want to use this functionality, but for internal tools. So these users are basically, uh, they're sort of playing both sides of the table in the sense that they, they're also the sort of uh, the provider role in the sense that they're the ones providing these integrations with their own toolings, with their, with their own custom in-house setups. And they're, they're coming to you to, to build these integrations for themselves, basically. Yeah, exactly. So they may have some tool they built in-house that they want to integrate with that's like private to them. And so they need, they want the same sort of functionality to, to connect to like developer tools or to web services together, but um, they're not necessarily looking to enable other people to use this thing. Um, or they use some tool that's public, but maybe just not popular or big enough to like warrant somebody building an integration for it. And so they want to just take it on themselves to build it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. The, in that case, they are sort of like a hybrid of, of both of the other parties. And, you know, I'm curious a little bit about what you do to, to build the right set of interfaces and the right set of hooks uh, across all these different kinds of integrations, I'm sure you have integrations that, okay, a lot of them maybe have to do with sort of workflow, mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of different tools out there for a lot of different purposes and a lot of different workflows. How do you go about sort of figuring out what's the, what's the common denominator there? And how do you build for that sort of diversity of tooling and afford them the buttons and levers that they need in order to, to make their thing work? The approach we take is essentially listening to people. Um, we do a bunch of outreach. We try to talk to customers. Uh, we talk to interested developers at other tools that think there's some value in integrating with Sentry. I think so far we've taken a very like uh, sort of use case approach to it where we, we listen to all these sets of, of people and what they want and what they uh, need and think they need and sort of try to drive what we what we enable through that. Because you're right, there's there's a million versions of this and a million different types of integrations and things uh, you can build. And sort of 
choosing which ones to do out of thin air is really hard. And so I think we're trying as much as possible to take the approach of like, let's try to find evidence that there is something useful here. And, and most products or companies or anything, you do that by listening to the people uh, who are using it and trying to understand what they're really trying to accomplish. So that's sort of what we've been doing so far. Right. But is that, is that also like, you know, when you, when you talk with users and you, you know, there's the, there's the uh, old, old saying, you know, the, the plural of uh, anecdotes is data. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you're talking with customers, it's, it's this sort of um, not entirely subjective. You are collecting data points. Um, But uh, do you also find yourself relying on, on sort of more, more like numerical, like statistical, whatever, like metrics that you're collecting and sort of, which uh, which sort of hard numbers do you find yourself relying on, or is it mostly about the points and issues that customers are raising? Like, you know, maybe dig a little bit deeper into how that process looks like at Sentry. Yeah, so there's definitely some like hard number sort of precedents we have. So for for context, we have there's been some notion of like integrations or we call them plugins previously. That's been around for a while in Sentry. Um, because Sentry is open source, um, the way that looked previously was a repository which a bunch of, with a bunch of code that gets imported into Sentry and then used. Um, it's actually like code that got pulled into the Sentry code base. And so because that's been around for a while, a lot of people use that. Um, we have some sort of hard numbers generally about what kinds of tools and stuff people use. Um, and so we definitely look to that for some amount of like precedence, essentially. I think our approach is basically like use whatever the data we have mixed with what we're hearing from people. And the data we that we have is what people have used in the past, what kind of tools they've, um, what kind of like integrations or plugins or whatever that they've used in the past within Sentry, um, and then mix that with what they're actually asking for. Um, so, uh, what sort of other interesting technical challenges do you sort of see in, in, in building these, uh, these ecosystems or, or business challenges, uh, you know, sort of order of operations challenges. There's, there's a lot that goes into making these successful products. And while a lot of it is indeed technical, not any less important is sort of the softer, uh, skill of determining what it is that uh, customers actually want uh, from listening to what they are saying uh, because customers aren't always able to articulate those sort of uh, those sort of requests in, in in like sufficiently high resolution and when you do have that kind of customer then great like you know you you're set and you have lots of valuable feedback on a silver platter but when you don't it's on you to sort of like take, all these different and sometimes contradictory asks and bake it down into like, we should do a, B, C, D. So can you uh, maybe share like a story or some other sort of interesting technical challenge that you've worked on uh, while building this? Yeah. Um, Because our sort of like integration platform uh, assumes a lot of the time that you have, an account and an organization or whatever set up in both developer tools, it introduces this um, challenge where if you don't or 
something in that process of connecting those two accounts goes wrong, it's harder for one side to know about that. In the case of back in the day when before async provisioning in Heroku, mm-hmm. Heroku sent a request to the provider. The provider did a bunch of stuff in line and then responded with a success or a failure. It was pretty obvious when something went wrong on either side because either you got a 500 back or some error status or whatever that told you something went wrong or just timed out or whatever. Right. That's pretty obvious. Both sides know something went wrong. Heroku got an error back. They know it didn't work. They can fail accordingly, show the customer whatever they need to. When there's this sort of process where you expect something to be set up on both sides and the process involves installing something on Sentry, for example, being redirected to the other service to do configuration or whatever you need to do. If the user gets redirected and then something happens and something goes wrong on the other side and it's out of the scope of like the original request, Sentry doesn't know that that happened. And so I think for us, the like eventual consistency thing is a little trickier and more and more important in this case. Because um, what you can end up with is a bunch of data on either side that's just out of sync. So that's like an interesting challenge in contrast to sort of what it was at Heroku a lot of the time. I think another one for us specifically is scale and not necessarily like us scaling. The hard part is Sentry has gotten very, very good at ingesting a lot of data because that's what we do, right? Like exceptions and errors happen all the time. So we've gotten very good at that. If we're building a system that exposes those events and that data in some way, it means that potentially our partners and the integrated services need to also be able to ingest data at the same rate or close to it or whatever as we are. And that's not always the case because not every product is a infrastructure scale product or doesn't need to be scaled that way. And so part of the challenge is like figuring that out and sort of working within the bounds of all these other integrations and services and products and companies to like make that work without necessarily taking down (laughs) other services. In some cases, it's great because uh, you work with other developer tools that are like also in that sort of same realm. And so they're already set up to ingest that much data. But a lot of the time, they're just not. Like the product just inherently is not about that. Um, So one of our challenges is like, how do we build a system that still gets them all the data they need to function, um, but can do it in a way that is scalable for both parties, which sort of touches on like another challenge in all ecosystem work is like, it's not just you. It's not just your engineering team. It's not just your product team. It's all that plus entirely separate entity that you don't have any control over, but you need to work just as collaboratively with as you do your internal teams. Uh, so uh, another sort of question here is, you know, if you're working with these these teams, you know, some of them might be huge companies, some of them might be, you know, mom and pop, like, you know, two developers in a garage kind of, kind of situations. Uh, how do you make sure that they stay successful when you are suddenly pointing a fire hose of traffic and the associated revenue that comes with, you know, an exposure that comes from like, hey, you know, we featured your add-on on our page and 
now like you need to be able to handle you know x signups per minute or whatever it is that we're we're sort of sending your way because we've we've made your your integration the default for this category or whatever so how how do you help those sorts of engineers and those sorts of teams weather that that process and and come out the other side still looking good to their customers and not Im- impinging upon you know Sentry's brand mm-hmm. i think it's like scaling anything to be totally honest like i think if you think about it like they're another team within your organization it helps uh all the same technical things apply i think like gradual rollouts putting together sort of the like operational plan when you're talking about the project before you've ever launched it or deployed it is really important i think also trying to make sure both parties are have a good understanding of at least the like hypothetical load based on whatever knowledge you know about your independent systems is really important. And honestly, I, I think a lot of it is just like being prepared for the fact that like you might need to figure stuff out as you go. Like anything in software, there's some amount of learning uh, when you're doing the thing that is inevitable. Um, and so I think just trying to be as prepared up front Uh, communicative with your partners throughout the process so like while we were launching a bunch of stuff uh, for example we do uh, like weekly meetings with our partners to check in and see what challenges they were having challenges we were having trying to figure out how to solve those problems um, and just generally making sure we were on the same page about everything essentially so I think it's just being in contact with them all the time and sort of like mentally thinking about them like, at least for the engineering side of things, thinking about them like another engineering team in your organization. So um, uh, we're almost out of time. I wanted to ask you one, uh, one final question, which is uh, you've, you've really been around the block when it comes to building these sort of um, these, these two-party marketplaces or end-party marketplaces mm-hmm. um, for uh, established programs. Uh, uh, platforms like like Heroku and like Sentry. Mm-hmm. There are, of course, a lot of other uh, businesses out there that are doing this sort of thing. Uh, if, uh, if we have some developer or some product person who's listening right now, uh, what sort of is the uh, like a core bit of wisdom you'd want to impart to people who are working on this class of problems? What should they be thinking about process, tooling, anything? Uh, share some wisdom there. Hmm. Okay, so I think the point we talked about earlier where you have essentially different customers and they need and want different things, I think that's really, really important to acknowledge and to explicitly think about. Does that mean like changing in staffing? Does it mean like changing in sort of uh, go-to-market strategy? Like, you know, maybe um, spell that out a little bit more. Sure. I think in my mind right now, I'm thinking from sort of a, a, a like product perspective, like the things you would build for a developer building an integration that they want a million end users to use is probably a different product than what you would build for that end user to consume that integration. Um, right. A lot of that comes down to what you're offering partners and users for example, if your ecosystem has this sort of like 
revenue component to it like Heroku's does, then I think it's really important that you build tools to allow your partners to understand the revenue they're making through your ecosystem. And like even more so, gives them tools to optimize that. In that case, like money and revenue is a big motivating factor. And so for that party, you should be focusing on the things that are going to allow them to like understand how to optimize the revenue side of their integration while also optimizing the sort of like experience side of it. And you need to uh, mesh those two things together as much as possible because they go hand in hand. If a user has a good experience, they're going to want to use the tool more. Uh, if they use the tool more, the developer is going to make more money. Product-wise, I think it's really important to think that way. The things you build end up being differently. I also think it's just good generally to think about that mentally because how you interpret things that those two different groups say might be different based on that knowledge. So that's one thing I think is like super, super important that I don't know if, if everyone does, but I, I think it's... I think it's key to sort of building a, a successful ecosystem that's equally valuable to end users and to the, the sort of like partners enabling those end users. I guess from a technical perspective, I'd say this whole ecosystem idea is sort of trying to bridge different web services or applications or sort of like web software. And so... Um, you have a lot of the same like distributed systems problems you have elsewhere where there's two different independent pieces that have their own knowledge that are working together. And so as far as tooling and what you should build and focus on is sort of the like space between those two services, which a lot of the time is like requests from one to the other and vice versa. I think it's really useful to have a, a good understanding of what's going on between those two services so that a, you can understand the health of those integrations, and also you can understand when uh, things are going wrong, and you have enough information to figure out what's going wrong and to fix it quickly. Um, I think it's really easy to get into a situation where it's sort of a black box, and these two services are like working together most of the time, but then things go wrong, and you don't have enough information to figure out why, uh, and then it leads to a bad experience for customers, and et cetera, et cetera. And so it's I think it's really important to understand the like operational sort of like maintenance side of it technically. Gotcha. Well, uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today and for talking through all this stuff with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. Look forward to having you on the podcast again in the future. Hopefully. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish podcast. Kodish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.